Thank you, Macy, for that great prayer. Wasn't that great? I heard that little voice. I thought, whose voice is that? It was so good. And thank you for that worship, worship team. Those songs just are perfect in leading us into this time of hearing from God's word. So just so grateful for this church. I was excited to come this morning and see you all. Y'all looking so good. (laughs) At the time of the Revolutionary War, after George Washington had led the American colonies to victory, he was urged by some people to use the army to make himself king. Washington didn't choose that. He chose rather to go back to his farm. And when King George III, the King of England, learned that Washington did not choose to grasp after power or prestige, the king said, if he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. Where would the king get that definition of greatness? What shaped that ideal in his mind, in his thinking. There are many people who consider Washington's decision as a weakness, not as a strength. Well, today we're launching a new series from the Old Testament book of Proverbs, and we're calling the series Asking for a Friend, Wise Answers to Tough Questions. And here's the question we're going to look at today. Is humility a sign of greatness or a sign of weakness? Is the decision to not grasp after power and prestige a sign of greatness or weakness? Another way of putting it is pride, a virtue or a vice. Proverbs are a rich collection of wise sayings and it's a form of Hebrew poetry to teach us wisdom for life. King Solomon is the guy who gathered all of these wise sayings that come from various places and times to reveal the mind of God in all matters of life, even in ordinary life, everyday life. It appears that no topic escaped the attention of Solomon. Today we're going to talk about humility and pride. Uh, For six weeks, we're going to look at topics like children and parents, honesty and dishonesty, work ethic and laziness, wealth and poverty, generosity and greed, all coming from the teachings of wisdom from the book of Proverbs. So over the next six weeks, we're going to sharpen our ability to discern wisdom. And I was thinking about this. Not only will the sharpening of that discernment help us as persons with our own heart to expose the attitudes of our heart or the decisions of our life, but also as families and as people as we're engaging with social media and television, as we watch movies, it gives us a grid. The wisdom of God from the book of Solomon gives us a a grid for interpreting and discerning what's coming at us, the truth that's being told to us through movies, etc., So one of the ways that wisdom is taught in Hebrew poetry is by using a a literary design called parallelism. And one type of parallelism is called antithetical parallelism. Everybody have an amen? (laughs) Antithetical parallelism, which means it's a form of poetry in which two contrasting ways to live, two contrasting ideas are set in a poem or a couplet where the second line contrasts the first line. So I just want you to know that Proverbs is a form of Hebrew poetry to teach us wisdom, and it was a literary design that was shaped and and fashioned by the author to to teach us something, and it was a, a form called antithetical parallelism where two things are different from each other or opposed or antithetical to each other. For example, I gave you three verses here on the screen. Proverbs 11.13, it says, A gossip betrays a confidence, but a trustworthy person keeps a secret. 
Those two are opposed to each other. Or Proverbs 10.8 says, The wise are glad to be instructed, but babbling fools fall flat on their faces. Or here's one in Proverbs 10.4. It says, Lazy people are soon poor. Hard workers get rich. Now, the book of Proverbs is different from many of the other books of the Bible because there's no particular plot or storyline in the book. There's no character that stands out, no main character in the book. It's just wisdom itself that takes center stage in the story. So the book of Proverbs is all about wisdom. We're continually exhorted to seek after wisdom, to get wisdom, to pursue wisdom, to understand wisdom. And so these wise sayings, we're looking at them today because they're just as relevant today as they were back then when they were assembled and written. The recurring principle that shows up in the book of Proverbs is that those who choose wisdom and follow God will be blessed in numerous ways. They will be blessed with things like long life, with prosperity, with joy, with goodness, the goodness of God. These are not promises, and we need to be clear on that to clarify that Proverbs are not promises. They're just uh, axioms of truth that appear that normally in life this is the way things work out, such as the Proverbs that says, train up a child in the way that it will go, and when it is old, it will not depart from it. That's not a promise. It's just a statement that seems to be the way life goes. It's like, I've been told that I walk just like my dad. Well, duh, no no brainer there because I grew up in a farm and I'd walk in my dad's footsteps in the snow to punch holes in the ice to give the cattle uh, you know, water and, uh, and to find the cattle that were lost and to fix the fences. And I walked in his footsteps. So I, the, he, he showed me a pattern and I walked like my dad. And so it also teaches us that those who reject the Lord, on the other hand, suffer shame and death. And to reject God is to choose foolishness, folly over wisdom, and to separate ourselves from God and from his word, from his wisdom, and from his blessings. So what is wisdom anyway? Well, wisdom is different from knowledge because knowledge is nothing more than accumulation of raw facts or data or trivia things. But wisdom is the ability to see truth clearly. It's the ability to see people, to see events, to see circumstances and situations as God sees them. That's what wisdom is, seeing as God sees. So let's dive in. And what we're going to do is we're going to begin right in the dead center, in the middle verse of the book of Proverbs. There are 31 chapters in Proverbs with 915 verses in total. The middle verse is verse number 458. I, I, I counted them because I, I read this somewhere that the, the, the significance of the middle verse of Proverbs says, ah, oh, thought, you know, I'm cynical. I got to check whether this preacher is just exaggerating or not. But I read in the Our Daily Bread devotion one time and I saved it. And it's, it's good. So I checked the numbers and he was right. The middle verse is verse number 458 or Proverbs 16, 18, which says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Now that verse is a good example, by the way, of a type of parallelism parallelism that's found in Hebrew poetry that's different from antithetical parallelism. This is called synonymous parallelism, where the second clause adds to or explains or develops the first clause. So you have pride goes before destruction, then it explains what pride is by the term haughty spirit, and a haughty spirit goes before a fall. So that's synonymous parallelism, another manner of Hebrew poetry to teach us wisdom. But I believe it's not a coincidence that there at the dead center, the middle of the book of Proverbs, there's this solemn warning about the deadly sin of pride. 
I say it's not a coincidence because there's lots of literary evidence that the compiler of these proverbs designed them and structured them in a very uh, intentional way. And I don't think it was lost on Solomon as to what the middle verse actually was that he put here. And that pride is central. He was saying that pride is the most primal sin that has brought the wreck and the ruin to our world. It is the ultimate example of what foolishness is. So the Greek word for pride is the word huperephanea, which means self-overestimation. It means egocentricity. It means arrogance, or as this proverb says, a haughty spirit or haughtiness. Uh, it is narcissism. It is grandiosity. It is uh, thinking more of yourself than what you really are. The Blue Letter Bible has this definition. It says, a person with a swollen estimate of his own powers or merits, who looks down on others and even treats them with insolence and contempt. Now, to one degree or another, every one of us struggles with pride. And those who think they don't struggle with it probably have more pride than they even realize. So let's dive in. What? First of all, I want to explain what pride is not. Pride is not having a good self-esteem. A good self-image is not pride. Because in Jesus Christ, we are somebody. God created us, and God doesn't make junk. God redeemed us, and going to the cross was a statement of our significance. And the Bible describes Christians as the righteousness of God in Christ. So we're not junk. We're not inconsequential or unimportant. Our life does count for something, and God created every one of us for his glorious purpose, to shine his glory. And when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, that was an example of humility. But Jesus was not thinking lowly of himself when he did that. He knew that he came from God. He knew who he was, but knowing that, he still bent low and washed his disciples' feet. So humility is not thinking lowly about yourself. It's not thinking of yourself at all, as C.S. Lewis put it. Secondly, being confident is not pride. Confidence believes that God created us, God shaped us, and God has designed us, and my life can, he's put me here for a purpose, and my life can make a difference. Confidence comes from a place of self-acceptance, believing that God has designed us for special purpose. And confidence comes from knowing that we matter in the world and we're chosen by God in Christ to make a difference. It's like David said, for by your strength, I can run against a troop and I can leap over a wall. That's confidence. It's like there's a scripture that says the righteous are as bold as a lion. So pride is not self-confidence. Thirdly, taking pride in your work is not pride. When we say someone takes pride in his work, that's not the kind of pride the Bible is warning us about. When a job is well done and we get recognition for it or when a parent is grateful for their children or for some achievement, that's not sinful pride. I was thinking about the 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 night many years ago when I was in Lake Placid, New York, working in the 1980 Olympics and the U.S. hockey team beat the Russians. I'll never forget that experience. It's the closest thing on earth that reminds me of what heaven might be like. <laughs> that little town of, of Lake Placid just lit up with fireworks and these strobe lights were just going through the, the smoke of the fireworks. And it was just, and the people were running up and down the streets. Everybody was friends with one another. Everybody was yipping and yelling and raising their hands and Shouting hallelujah, no, not really. <laughs> but that was pride of a nation, right? Pride of a hockey team. And, and that's not a, 
a sinful pride. It's not the pride that leads to death. That was national pride. That was a, a good pride, <clears throat> even though the Canadians didn't win. <laughs> and fourth, I was even happy for the Americans. Yeah. <clears throat> Pleasure in being praised is not pride. Appreciating a compliment or an affirmation is not the same thing as pride. It becomes a problem, though, when the things that we're being praised for becomes an obsession, like we just got to feed off of more and more and more of it, and we're not happy unless we get it, or we miss it if we, if we don't have it, or something's wrong if we didn't get it, or something that drives us into this egocentricity. Signs that maybe we're obsessing over our need for affirmation might be that when we can't let go of an area that we've been complimented on. We just can't let go of it and, and let somebody else do something or take over uh, because we love, we have a need for uh, recognition and affirmation. Or maybe we can't share it with others or we start to look down on others because we don't think they're as good as us or can do as good a job as us. Well, that's when it leads into pride, but pl just, Finding pleasure in being praised is not pride. It's just social etiquette. It's an, it's a, 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 an attribute of love for me to tell my wife, thank you, that was a delicious meal tonight, you know. And that's just appropriate. It's the way human relationships work. So what is the, the sin of pride? Well, first of all, it's an attitude of independence from God. It's an attitude that says, I don't need you, God. I don't need you in my life. Just stay out of my life. You might say, well, I don't have that attitude. Well, how attentive are you to God? Do you have regular conversations with him? Do you thank him and talk to him throughout the day? I remember as a college student, I took a weekend missions trip down to um, Key West, Florida. I went to Bible college in Florida. And I was helping this elderly matriarch of the mission one afternoon move some furniture around for a Bible study that evening. And as I grabbed one end of a table and she grabbed the other end, I heard her whisper something. I heard her talking to someone. And she was asking God for strength to lift that table. And I was so, in, I was just a young man, but I was so impressed with that, that she was kind of oblivious that I was there and she was in a relationship with someone else. She was in relationship with God and she was talking to him and said, God, I, I'm depending upon your strength. I, would you help me with my back to lift this table. And it left an impression on me as simple as that was to say that no task in life is too unspiritual as to exclude God from our life, right? That we can include him in everything that we do. So pride is approaching life with the attitude, I don't need to listen to God. I don't need to consult him or depend on him. I can handle life without you, God. And if God is not part of your regular internal conversation or dependence, then you're living independent of God, and it's a sign you may be wrestling with pride. The second characteristic of pride is ungratefulness to God. There's this proverb in Proverbs 17, 13 that says, if you repay good with evil, evil will never leave your house. And what that is, is talking about is that the goodness of God in our life deserves to be repaid with expressions of gratitude. For example, last Friday night, I don't know if any of you saw the amazing Aurora display, incredible, that was outside. It just went on and on, and I, I got up at 12.30 or 1, and there it was out in its full glory. I threw my house coat, my slippers on, and Jedi, my Australian shepherd, and I went outside, and we snapped pictures, and we're standing, I'm just standing there watching, and I thought, you know, the, the, the only thing that's appropriate right now is just to say, thank you, God. And we stood there, 
just a Jedi was right there in it with me, and we're worshiping God for giving us this wonderful manifestation and glimpse of his glory. Proverbs 21.4 says, A haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin, which means a man who plows his field without giving God thanks for the sun, for the rain, for the germination of the seed. He is a self-sufficient man, and that is what pride is all about because pride is self-autonomy. Humility is God-reliance, God-dependence. Pride can be summarized as just this attitude of self-sufficiency, self-importance, and self-exaltation in relationship to God. Paul, the apostle, asked this penetrating question. He said, what do you have that you did not receive? I mean, is there anything that we have that wasn't a gift to us from God? You may think, well, I work for everything that I've gotten. Well, who gave you that ingenuity? Who gave you that strength? Who gave you that energy? Who gave you the, even the opportunity to be here in this world? You don't have one blessed thing that you have not received from God. <laughs> Paul told Timothy that in the last days, our world will be characterized by, he said, peoples will, people will be lovers of self, ungrateful. He gave a long list of characteristics of what life will be like in the last days, but this is what strikes me the most. He said, people will be lovers of self, ungrateful. Ungrateful. So ingratitude to God is not a good thing. <laughs> it's a sign of pride. The third characteristic of the sin of pride is thinking you are better than others. And here are some indicators of that. A proud person will not admit mistakes and becomes irritated when corrected for those mistakes. A proud person refuses to take counsel and unwilling to learn from others and be helped by others. A proud person takes pleasure in being first, just has to be at the top above the rest. C.S. Lewis said, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. <laughs> so why does God hate pride? I, I want to give you five reasons why God is opposed to pride. First of all, pride is the core sin behind all evil. The book of Proverbs gives us clear warnings about this. Back to that middle verse again, the central verse in the way that Solomon composed all of these wise sayings. At the very middle, he put these words, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. So remember, that's the middle verse, and it's teaching us that pride is the center of it all. It's the beginning of it all. It goes before the mess in our world that's happened. Before the fall in the Garden of Eden, there was pride. And so all evil started with pride. There are some segments of our culture today that would consider pride to be a virtue and not a vice. But according to the Bible, pride is the root of all that's wrong on earth. All the evil, it's the beginning of the warpness, the brokenness, the beginning of sin in our world. Matter of fact, in Proverbs 6.16, it says, These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven, are an abomination to him. And the first one in the list is a proud look. Seven things God hates, and number one on the list is pride. St. Augustine, who was an old church um, leader, believed that pride is the core sin. He said it's the deadly root of all our sins and sorrows in life. And I, I, I just love this definition from a third century monk whose name was Cassian, he said, there is no other vice then which so reduces to nothing every other virtue and so spoils and impoverishes a human being of all righteousness and holiness as does the evil of pride. 
C.S. Lewis, I'm sure you've heard of him. He wrote that famous book, Mere Christianity, and he has a whole chapter in his book on pride. And he calls that chapter on pride, The Great Sin, The Great Sin. And he says that Christian teachers all down through the centuries agree that pride is the utmost evil. He said, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Lewis goes on and says, it is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Well, if that sounds like an hyperbole or an overstatement or exaggeration, then maybe we don't realize why God hates pride so much. God hates pride because it's the core sin behind all evil. Secondly, pride created the devil. Pride is what turned Lucifer, the son of the morning, into Satan, the father of night. And among Paul's standards for a preacher, was that an interesting statement he gives because this is an occupational hazard of anybody in leadership. And he says that a, a minister must not be a novice. In other words, don't put him into that office if he's a novice. He needs to be tested and needs experience, needs to prove himself. But then he goes on and he says, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Interesting, the allusion to the devil and a description that that was the problem of what caused Satan to fall. The third reason God hates pride so much is it ruined humanity. It ruined us by infecting us with a spiritual cancer, a nature that is just proud and stands up in opposition towards God. C.S. Lewis again says, pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love, contentment, or even common sense. In the Garden of Eden, do you think the temptation that Adam and Eve had was that just there's, there's, is it salivary glands? Am I saying that right? Good. We're drooling over an apple or a plum or a peach or what was the fruit in the garden? I don't know. We can debate that. We'll find that out when we get to heaven. But it wasn't that they just had to have a plum or had to have an apple. It wasn't that. The temptation that the enemy brought to them was you will be like God. The very root of the fall in the garden even is the belief that we do not need God, that we are on par with God, equal with God. And pride is, is rooted in the fall of the Garden of Eden. That's where it started from. That's what soiled and contaminated, and it's where the cancer started. It spread through the human race. And pride causes us to think of ourselves as the center of the universe, that man is the measure of all truth, and our personal opinion is the standard of all morality. And pride sets itself up in opposition to God's wisdom and his will. The fourth reason God hates pride is that pride thinks independence for God, independence from God is the secret of happiness. That I'll never be really happy until I'm set free from a relationship with God. Because pride is this orientation that causes us to drip, drift and pull away from the Lord. We were made creatures in order to be cared for by our maker, to be nurtured, to be loved on and lavished his goodness to be lavished out upon our life by our maker. But Adam and Eve took Satan's bait of self-autonomy as the secret of happiness and the good life. And it's a lie. And pride was the sin of Lucifer and the fallen angels who said, I will not serve God. And pride was the sin of Adam and Eve who wanted to be like God and to decide for themselves, we will choose what is right and wrong. And so pride resulted in disobedience and sin, and that 
brought pain and suffering and death into our world. The price we pay for choosing to live independent of God is to be cut off from the fellowship of God in the Garden of Eden. And it's fellowship with God that is the secret of happiness, right? The Bible says in Proverbs that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So pride puts a bullseye on our back. Humility is the key, however, that unlocks the doorway into intimacy with God and is the secret to happiness. And the fifth reason God hates pride is not because of, of you know, he's, that God can't stand to be opposed. That's not what it's about. It is God's love and care for his creatures. And, and he hates it when he sees how self-destructive pride is. Pride is self-destructive. Just look at all these Proverbs that I've listed. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes shame. By pride comes nothing but strife. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. There's that middle verse again. Or he who is of a proud heart stirs up strife. Pride ends in humiliation, while humility brings honor. The very thing that a proud person wants, he loses. And he loses the admiration of others and ends up with contempt, Proverbs says. Well, I'm kind of tired about talking about pride. I think I ought to move on. <laughs> I'm kind of sick of, sick of pride. <laughs> but we need to hear that, don't we? We need to hear how how it's messed up our world and how damaging and destructive it is. And we must let the Holy Spirit cut that cancer out of our heart. So that leads into a transitional thought that I want to say, and that is that pride is our greatest enemy, but humility is our greatest friend. The story of salvation or God's work of redemptive history in our world as revealed in the scriptures is a movement from pride to humility. That's what being a Christian is about. That's what being saved or salvation is about. It's moving away from a, a proud life to humility. It's moving from the Garden of Eden to the cross of Jesus Christ. It moves from a desire for self-glory to a desire to reflect the glory of God. It starts with the pride of Satan and the choice of Adam and Eve to live independent of God. And then the story moves on. The story doesn't end there. Much of the Old Testament is a description of what the world is like when it lives in that state of independence from God. But the story moves on to the New Testament to give us a revelation of true wisdom as what was exhibited and revealed in God's Son, Jesus Christ, in his self-giving humility, revealing himself to be willing to give up his rights in heaven and suffer on the cross for the sins of the world. And pride then moves from, from its despicable picture in the Garden of Eden to its glo the glorious picture of humility on the cross of Jesus Christ. And likewise, in our own personal lives, the story of God's work of salvation at work in you and me is a movement of maturity that happens in our relationship with the Lord that transforms us from pride to humility. And hopefully if you've been walking with God for a while that you're, you're less proud than you once were and you're, you're more humble than you once were. Satan is terrified to see you growing in humility. He hates it. He sees a humble person and it sends chills down his back. Humility steals his best weapon. It renders him powerless. His hair stands up when Christians choose to live the way of the cross, the way of Jesus Christ. Humility strikes fear in Satan because humility is the surrender of the soul to the Lord and the devil is terrified of Jesus Christ because he knows that the way of Christ is the way that wins the world and will ultimately bring 
the righteousness of God and the kingdom of God to our earth. So I want to talk about humility very quickly. First of all, as an example, three young men hopped on a bus in Detroit in 1930, and they tried to pick a fight with a lone man sitting at the back of the bus. They insulted him. They hurled verbal bombs at him. They threatened to beat him up. They insulted him. He didn't respond. They turned up the heat more and more, and he said nothing. Eventually, the stranger just stood up. And when he stood up, they realized, hey, this guy is way bigger than they had estimated him sitting in that seated position, much bigger. And he reached down into his pocket and he pulled out this little piece of paper. It was a business card. And he handed it to them. And as they, he walked off the bus and on his way, the young men gathered around to look at this card. And the card had these words on it, Joe Lewis, boxer. <laughs> They had just tried to pick a fight with a man who would be the heavyweight boxing champion of the world from 1937 to 1949. The number one boxer of all time, according to the International Boxing Research Organization, second on the list to Muhammad Ali. So here's a man of immense power and strength and skill capable of defending his honor with a single devastating blow. Yet he chooses to forego his status, to let go of that opportunity and hold his power in check for the sake of others. And in this case, some very fortunate young men who would have the advantage of keeping their teeth for the rest of their life. <laughs> Joe Lewis, that's a beautiful example of humility. He was willing to give up his power. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, C.S. Lewis said. Humility is thinking about how are my decisions going to affect other people? Humility is a willing choice to redirect our powers that we have, whether it be physical power or intellectual, financial, or some position we hold, but redirecting those powers for the sake of others. Humility is not self-deprecation of putting ourselves down. It is self-restraint for the love of other people. So that brings us then to a definition of humility. I just love the origin of the word humility. It comes from the Latin word humus, which means earth or soil or dust, or dirt. And it reminds us what God said to Adam in the book of Genesis, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Humility is remembering that we are created by God and we have feet of clay. We are earthen vessels, we are humans, which is a derivative of the same word, humus, which comes from the soil. Humility is the soil in which all happiness comes, all virtue grows. It's the fertile ground of everything that's good in this world, the fertile ground of happiness. And it's interesting that in Jesus' parable that he told of the sower who went forth to sow, or it's sometimes described as the parable of the four soils, the last soil, the best soil, is called the good soil. And when Jesus describes the the kind of heart or the person that the good soil represents. He says that it's a picture of the person who humbly hears and understands and receives the word of God and then allows that word to shape a life and accomplish its purpose and results in our life. That's the good soil. We are earthen vessels the Bible says, who were formed by the hand of God. Our, our key verse just this past weekend for our Echo Missions Conference was out of 2 Corinthians 4, 7, which says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels to show the transcendent power that belongs to God and not to us. Humility is the acknowledgement that every good thing that we have, every gift 
that we enjoy comes from God and not from within ourselves. As I said, the word human is a variant of the word humility. Reminds me of an old gospel song. You would know that something reminds me of an old gospel song, right, John? How many of you ever heard of Dottie Rambo? Nobody did in the first service. Oh, somebody knows. You remember Dottie Rambo? She wrote a lot of good old gospel songs. And I remembered one this week that says, um, just remember I'm human and humans forget, so remind me, remind me, dear Lord. If you don't remember Dottie Rambo singing it, um, Alison Krauss, she's kind of a good singer. Uh, Alison Krauss sang this song in the olden days. And, and anyway, here's the words. They go, nothing good have I done to deserve God's own son. I'm not worthy of the scars in his hands. Yet he chose the road to Calvary to die in my stead. Why he loved me, I can't understand. Roll back the curtain of memory now and then and show me where you brought me from and where I could have been. Just remember I'm a human and humans forget. So remind me, remind me, dear Lord. And I love that because the word human is a derivative of the same word humility that comes from this uh, idea of hummus or dirt or earth. And so we're just human. We use that expression, right? I'm just human, meaning that I have imperfections. And so that brings me finally to the model of humility. The Apostle Paul said that Jesus modeled humility better than anyone else. And Jesus came to this world certainly to die for our sins, but in living the life that he lived and doing what he did on our behalf, He becomes the model for us of ultimate, the apex of wisdom. And wisdom is the expression of humility. Paul urged the early Christians to live in humility, just like Jesus, by choosing to think of others better than themselves. And specifically, what Paul wants to point out about humility is how the greatest man that we have ever known chose to forego his status in heaven and come to earth for the good and for the sake of others. And here's that verse. It's a great verse out of Philippians chapter 2, and I didn't have enough space to put all the verses, but the first two verses is an exhortation for us to be humble. Paul says, don't be selfish, don't try to impress others, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. And then he says, it's on the the screen there, you must have the same attitude that Christ had, Christ Jesus had, though he was God, He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. You know, I've got to stay in heaven and have this place there. But instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God. See, that's what humility is. It's saying, thy will be done, Lord, as Jesus said on the cross. Not my will, your will be done. And so in obedience to God, he died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor, gave him the name that is above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Just a few decades after Jesus lived on earth and died on the cross, there was a Roman official named Clement. And I want you to catch what I just said. He was a Roman. He was a Roman. Because Romans did not celebrate humility. They celebrated pride. So this Roman official, just a few years after Jesus, sent a letter to the Christians in Corinth And he gave this description about the Christians in Corinth. He said, You are all humble-minded, not boastful, 
yielding rather than domineering, happily giving rather than receiving. Now, there was a university professor that I heard one time. His name was John Dixon. He, he was giving a teaching at the Bill Hybels Leadership Conference from Willow Creek in Chicago. And he wrote a book. He was giving a lecture at this leadership retreat about a, based on a book he had just written called Humilitus, the key, the lost key to life, love, and leadership. And he says that this description of Christian humility from the Roman um, leader, official named Clement, shows us something significant. That just a few years after Jesus' life, it shows evidence that Jesus changed the world's perception of pride and humility. And that Jesus changed the world by redefining humility as a virtue to be admired rather than a weakness to be avoided. And Dick Dixon shows in his book how Christianity dismantled, he said, the all-pervasive honor-shame paradigm of the ancient Roman world. He said prior to the, remember the, if you're in my New Testament, I mean my, uh, my Gospels class, the Romans liked to give themselves names that meant they were gods, right? They, that's, that lead, they saw as leadership, they saw as an opportunity to be like a god. And so that was the culture of the Roman world. And then Jesus comes. And the point is that the life of Jesus was a story about a greatness that was willing to go to the cross. And it changed the world so that this Roman a few years after Jesus' death, gives a compliment to the Corinthians Christians because they were humble. And the point is that if you're a true follower of Jesus Christ, you value, if you're truly following Jesus, you will value humility over pride. It means we raise humility now as the standard. We see lowering oneself for the good of others as what is ethically beautiful. When Sir Edmund Hillary conquered Mount Everest with Tenzin Norgay in 1953, he reportedly took with him up there to the summit a symbol of his achievement. So he planned this in advance. He carried it up there, and that symbol remains buried up there somewhere at the top of the world, and it was a small crucifix, a cross. We don't know why he chose to carry a cross to Mount Everest. But he chose it to mark an incredible achievement. And as far as we know, Hillary wasn't an overly religious man, but the point is that at the moment of his greatest triumph, he chose a token that symbolized and expressed humility as a sacrifice in the service of others. Whatever Sir Edward was thinking, it shows that his choice of the cross as a symbol of human achievement shows the influence of the life of Jesus of Nazareth and what he has had upon our culture. In the ancient world before Christ came, the cross was an instrument of Rome's brutalizing power to humiliate a person. Now it stands as a symbol of true greatness. Before the death of Jesus on the cross, the ancients drew a straight line between greatness and honor, showing honor. But Jesus influenced us to think differently. He taught us to draw a straight line between greatness and humility. So how will you answer this question that the book of Proverbs raises? Is humility a sign of greatness or weakness? Is pride a virtue or a vice? Listen to these words of Jesus, and I close with them. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said to them, I can guarantee this truth. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, the person who is greatest among you will be your servant. 
Whoever honors himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be honored. And then Jesus poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and dry them with a towel that he had tied around his waist. And when Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered Peter, you don't know now what I'm doing, but you will understand later. And Peter told Jesus, you will never wash my feet. Jesus replied to Peter, if I don't wash you, you don't belong to me. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, don't wash only my feet. Wash my hands and my head and (laughs) wash everything, Lord. (laughs) And after Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothes, he took his place at the table again. And then he asked the disciples, do you understand what I've just done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that's what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you must wash each other's feet. I've given you an example that you should follow. If you understand all of this, you are blessed whenever you follow my example. And so we have some basins and water. No, I'm just kidding. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this instruction of wisdom. We want to live this way, Lord. We want to live in the way that Jesus has modeled true greatness as being laying down our lives for the sake of others. Teach us, Lord, what brings life rather than what leads to death and strife and turmoil in our world. Lord, would you, by your Holy Spirit, just reveal to us any categories of sin, of pride, of attitudes that are not becoming of you and like you, Lord? Would you just reveal them to us so that we can be shaped and, and shine like the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Lord, just bless This truth to our hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and reflect on these words as we sing.